0: let me uh, pray one more time before we begin Um, father we do pray that you would open your eyes to your word help us to see what you have to say give us insight and ultimately lord we we want to walk away from your word to different people um, impacted empowered by your your spirit to walk in a life in a way that uh, is pleasing to you we pray all of this in christ's name amen Well, I want to begin with a question. Where can we find hope? What can we place our hope in? If you pay attention to any storyline, to any plot, every story offers an element of hope. Ultimately, it's, it's that element of hope It keeps the plot line moving forward, even through scenes of conflict and scenes of turmoil. Right now, Amanda and I like watching uh, a Marvel series called Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's on Netflix. And in this show, hope is typically a major theme. It's typically one of the primary themes brought up over and over throughout this show, and it's usually brought up explicitly. Throughout the series, hope is typically bound up in some sort of elaborate plan of time travel and changing uh, the historical timeline. There's a constant battle between the fate of the universe and the capacity of mankind to choose what is better than what the universe has in store. Ultimately, the hope depicted in the series is always bound up in the main characters. It's always bound up in in the capacity of human beings to make choices that will result in what is best. While that might not be the best thing, there are typically really good plot lines, really good thriller kind of a show. But Our hope as Christians is not bound up in humanity. Our hope is not bound up in the abilities or the capacity of mankind to make choices that will alter timelines. That is not where we find our hope. Our hope is found in our God, who entered into human history as both a king and a priest in order to bring eternal salvation to mankind. And this is a story that is told throughout the Old Testament and the New. I want to point out from Psalm 110 that this is the story told even in the Psalms. We just read it. But over and over again, this passage is on the forefront of the author of Hebrews' mind. This passage is quoted time and time again throughout the pages of his of hebrews remember the very beginning of hebrews in chapter one when we read through verses one through four christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after making purifications for sins in a sense that is shorthand summary for psalm 110 here's what we read in this passage psalm 110 the lord This psalm offers hope by highlighting both the priesthood and the kingship of the coming Messiah. Notice verses 1 through 2 speak about the rule and reign of this coming anointed one. He sits at the right hand of God and he has a mighty scepter in his hand ruling over his enemies. And then in verse 4, we see something jarring. The king is a priest. This coming Messiah would not only rule on the throne, he would serve at the altar as a high priest. And just so you're aware, this is revolutionary hope in the pages of the Old Testament. This idea is is unique. A messianic king who would also serve as a priest. This is foreign to the law of Moses. You see, in the law of Moses, kings do not serve as priests. In fact, multiple kings in the Old Testament were judged by God because they tried to act like priests. It's because the law of Moses forbid kings to act like priests. 1 Samuel 13 Saul, the first king of Israel, was judged by God for offering a burnt sacrifice. And in response to this act, God told Saul that his kingdom would be ripped from his hand. And in the very next generation, God hands the kingdom over to David and to David's lineage. Second Chronicles 26. King Uzziah, who lived as a righteous king for most of his life, becomes proud, and he decides that he's going to go into the temple and he's going to offer incense to God. He's going to burn incense. That's it. And as soon as he enters into the temple he breaks out with leprosy and he has to spend the rest of his life in quarantine in quarantine because he's sick as a leper. And so this is why Hebrews constantly references Psalm 110 because Psalm 110 clearly predicts that the Messiah would serve both as a king and as a priest. How is he going to do that? If the law forbids that, how can he do that? And that is a significant question. For the Jew, they understood. The kings came from David, the tribe of Judah. The priests came from Levi. They were Levites. Yet over and over again, Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews keep making the argument that Jesus is both a king and a priest. So tonight, we have an explanation in the book of Hebrews from Psalm 110 explaining how this can be so. Now, I hope you feel that tension. I hope you feel the tension that the Old Testament doesn't permit this, and yet Jesus comes and he does this. This is who he is. We need to understand why this is the case and we need to know why it was right for Christ to come and do this. But before we do that, I also want to help you understand why this idea is so significant in the first place. Why does it matter that Jesus is a priestly king? Why is that important? Why is that significant? So before we ask, how can this be? How can Jesus be a priestly king? We need to ask another question. Why in the world does it even matter? What's the significance? Well, throughout the Old Testament, without a righteous king, the people of Israel perish. Simultaneously, without a righteous priesthood, the people perish. In the Old Testament, where the king goes, so too go the people. So if if he is a righteous king, the people will follow in his wake, living righteous and godly lives. However, if the king is a godless king, the people will follow him into wickedness and idolatry. It's seen over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And what we also see is that a king who is righteous can't function without a righteous priest Righteous kings needed righteous priests. In fact, some of the godliest kings, like David and King Josiah, the priests were their personal advisors, and that's why they prospered as kings. And that's why the people prospered, because there was a righteous king and a righteous priest working together, leading the people. So for Israel, both a king, and a priest were essential for spiritual growth and prosperity among the people without one the other would surely fail and if the king or the priest fail then the people fail which is why both psalm 110 and the book of hebrews are so significant because here in these passages we find a blending it's a conflating of these two roles The king is now the priest. The priest is now the king. And both roles are occupied by a righteous individual, one righteous individual who's able to function in both roles perfectly. So that is why this question matters. Because that's the type of priestly king we want And so now we need to back up and ask, how is it true that he can do this, even though the Old Testament law didn't provide a way for this? Which leads us to a man named Melchizedek. Throughout Hebrews 7 and throughout Psalm 10, this individual comes up. In fact, we've heard his name multiple times in the book of Hebrews. But I've been waiting for tonight in order to discuss why he is so significant and why he is so important. And the author of Hebrews is aware that he needs to spend some time explaining who Melchizedek is as well. That's because in the Old Testament this this guy shows up two times, and yet the book of Hebrews is placing his entire argument on this one individual that Jesus can be both a priest and a king. Can serve both roles. So that's exactly what chapter 7 is. This is an explanation from Psalm 110 of why Melchizedek lends himself to the idea of Jesus being both a priest and a king. So here's a spoiler alert The reason Melchizedek is important is because he answers this question How can Jesus be a priestly king? So keep that in mind as we come to Hebrews 7. We'll begin in verses 1 and 2. This is the backstory of Abraham's tithe towards Melchizedek. So, back in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When we read verse 1 here, in the start of verse 2, we see that Hebrews is referencing Genesis 14, 14, 18 through 20. And here's what we read in Genesis 14. Sorry, I'm going to actually begin in Genesis. uh, Genesis 14, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God, the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, by God, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So that's what we read in in Hebrews, or or, sorry, in Genesis. Now I want to read verses 1 and 2 from Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abram apportioned a tenth, uh, and to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. So here in this passage, we have Abraham... Depicted In Hebrews, Abraham is depicted interacting with this man named Melchizedek. And in the, the, the book of Genesis, which, which Hebrews is clearly referring to, Melchizedek comes to Abraham right after Abraham won this battle, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham then gives uh, uh, Melchizedek a tenth of everything he just earned through this battle. And then Melchizedek disappears. And he doesn't show up again until Psalm 110. So in a sense, it's though he is extremely insignificant. He seems to be not all that important. He shows up in three verses in Genesis and one verse in Psalm 110. And that's it throughout the course of the Old Testament. Yet Hebrews is making such a big deal out of this guy. So what's the significance? That's what the rest of the chapter explains so let's keep reading look now to verse 2 he says that he is the king of righteousness and the king of Salem the king of peace so here's what he's saying there his name literally Melchizedek's name literally means king of righteousness Malek, Tzadek those are two Hebrew words that's all it means king of righteousness and then when it says king of Salem Salem is is Hebrew for uh peace so he's king the king of peace so he is simultaneously the king of righteousness and the king of peace but we also see here that he is a high priest of God and so we have to consider what what is a priest in the first place what what does a priest do Maybe you have in mind a Catholic priest. Maybe you grew up Catholic and you're thinking of the individual who would come up and, and give a homily and then give the mass. But that's not what Hebrews has in mind. That's, that's not what Genesis has in mind. That's not what the Old Testament has in mind when they think of priests. Biblical priests were concerned with the spiritual purity of God's people. They were responsible for conducting ceremonial sacrifices that were intended to bring cleansing to the people of Israel. They were in charge of maintaining the purity of the temple, since that is where God dwelt. They were also in charge of entering into God's presence once a year in order to make one specific sacrifice for the people of Israel that was supposed to cleanse them of their sin for the entire year. Yet when we come to Melchizedek, we see he is an exception because he is serving both as a priest and a king, which paves the way for Jesus, who is both a priest and a king. That's not the only way that Melchizedek prepares the way for Jesus. Chapter 7, verse 3 from Hebrews. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the son of god he continues as a priest forever. Well now I'm sure maybe maybe you're thinking all sorts of questions are popping up. Right? I think there's a reason when people think of the book of Hebrews one of the very first questions they ask is like who is this guy Melchizedek and why is he such a big deal in Hebrews? Well here you can see why people have that question. What's going on? Is he an eternal being? Who is this guy? Says he has no genealogy, he has no beginning of days, he has no end of days. What is he talking about? Some have even gone on to say that that Melchizedek is is Jesus Christ pre incarnate come to 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 Abraham in the flesh as Melchizedek. Is that what is going on here? I I actually think that could be the case. I'm not exactly sure. But I will say this. I don't think that's really the most significant thing. I'm not really, I'm not totally convinced. I, I don't think the emphasis here is that Melchizedek is Jesus. Verse 3 actually says that he is only like Jesus. He's similar to Christ. I don't think the point is that he's an eternal being. I mean, in Hebrews, uh it's clear that he, he isn't referred to as God or the son of God. He's, he's just like him. Also, when we go to Genesis, when, when the, this individual Melchizedek shows up on the scene, he's, he's accompanied with all these other kings who seem to be people. Melchizedek just happens to be with them. He's not per, uh, uh, portrayed in, a, in any special way. Later on in, in Genesis, actually, we have angels coming to, to Abraham. Abraham. The angel of the Lord comes to Abraham, but he's introduced as the angel of the Lord. Melchizedek's not introduced in that way. So I, I'm not convinced that that's what Hebrews is saying, that this is Jesus incarnate or that it's, you know, the angel of the Lord, but maybe. I actually think the reason that Melchizedek is brought up is pointed, or it's clarified in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 7. So look down to verse 13. Here's what we read. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. So Jesus belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So in other words, Jesus is from a different tribe. This tribe that Jesus is from, no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek so notice that this passage is about lineage and physical descent that's the emphasis here What's Jesus' lineage? What's his physical descent? As of late, the royal family in England has been a very big deal. I don't don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but there are shows on Netflix about the queen. Uh, Prince Harry's wedding was broadcasted all across America a couple of weeks ago, and people stayed up through the entire night in order to watch this thing whatever reason, people are extremely fascinated, even over here in America, with the royal family and how all of it works. Now, there is a pecking order when it comes to who can serve as king or queen in England. And this pecking order is specified by birth, by birth order, by descent. Now, I went to school with a buddy of mine named Jamie from the U.K., And he explained to me some of the different uh, aspects of the royal family. He was telling me how after Queen Elizabeth, the next person in line is Prince Charles. And uh, then he told me in a very British way, and Charles is an idiot. And uh, everyone in England is really hoping that they can find some way to to bypass Charles and just go straight to Prince William, Charles' son. But realistically, that is not the way... The royal family works. There are rules and regulations to the throne in Buckingham Palace. You cannot break the royal decree of lineage. Well, the the Levitical priesthood was somewhat similar. You had to prove through genealogy and through lineage that you were a descendant of Levi in order to serve as a priest. Yesterday, I was reading through the book of Ezra. So the people of Israel are coming back from Babylon. They were just in exile. They returned to the land. And in chapter 3, I'm reading about this this family. The entire family was prohibited from serving as priests because they couldn't prove that they were of the the lineage of, of Levi. But notice what we see here. Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He was born of Judah. That's what... Hebrews is getting at in verses 13 through 17. And there weren't priests who came out of Judah. So, according to the law of Moses, Jesus was not eligible to become a priest. But Jesus was not a priest according to his bodily descent. He isn't a Levite. Instead, he actually serves under a different priesthood. He serves in the priesthood of Melchizedek. And this priesthood is not concerned with lineage or descent. The point of the passage here is to prove that neither Jesus nor Melchizedek were connected to Levi. So when it says that, that Melchizedek didn't have a father or a mother, it didn't talk about his genealogy, it doesn't talk about his beginning of life or end of life. The significance here is that it doesn't ever connect Melchizedek to Levi. He's of a different priestly order. And Jesus is the exact same way. He's not connected to Levi. He's actually connected to a different priesthood. He's connected to to Melchizedek, which is why the next verses continue the way they do. Now we, we see that Jesus was not only of, of the Melchizedekian uh, priesthood, but we see that that priesthood is far better than the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Levi. So now look at Hebrews 7, verses 4 to 10. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, uh, uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who did not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So here's what's going on in verses 4 through 10. All we see here is that Melchizedek is far better than the Levites. He's far better than Abraham. He's he's superior. And we see this in two ways. First off, Abraham paid Melchizedek 10% tithe. And this was before there was a law demanding that Abraham even do this. So before the law was given through Moses, Old Testament history, Abraham precedes Moses by more than 500 years. And so there is no law saying you need to give 10% of your your earnings to the priest. And yet Abraham recognizes this is a priest of God, and he goes about and and he offers this man 10% of all of his earnings. Next, what we see here is that Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing. And in verse 7, we see that this proves that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's because the person who blesses is the superior to the one who receives the blessing. So, so these verses are just highlighting the fact that, that Jesus, who follows Melchizedek, is of is a higher priesthood. Than Levi, of a higher priesthood than the Mosaic institution. So let's recap what we see here before we move into the rest of the chapter. Why is Melchizedek brought up? Remember, if you are a Jew and you understand the Mosaic law, you are thinking Jesus can't be a priest. He, he's not a Levite. What are you talking about? He's a king and, a, and he's a priest. That doesn't make any sense. Melchizedek is brought up and Psalm 110 is brought up in order to demonstrate Jesus can be a priest. And not only that, but he can be a better priest than the Levites because he is not of the Levitical order. He is of the Melchizedekian order of priesthood. That is why Melchizedek is brought up in the first place. Jesus has a supreme priesthood and it's proven by the fact that he is of a superior priesthood the priesthood of Melchizedek. So let's keep going. Now we see that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 11, that's where we'll begin. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron. So notice what he's saying here. You wouldn't need a new priest if the former priesthood actually made people perfect. Jesus is a better priest and he offers a better covenant. In a sense, the Levitical priesthood did not offer true hope There wasn't sincere perfection found in the Old Testament sacrifices. Day after day they offered them, year after year they offered them, but they never brought full perfection to the people of Israel. Those sacrifices never gave them the purity that they needed in order to enter into the presence of God. Which does beg a question. In a few weeks, we'll talk about why the sacrifices were even in existence in the first place. Why are there sacrifices if they if they don't actually accomplish what they're intended to accomplish? But for now, consider this. Consider that there was no true purification prior to Christ. There was a need for a new priest because perfection could not be found under the Levitical system. There was a need for a new priesthood, a final priesthood in Christ. So now, look at verses 18 and 19. Here we begin to see that under Christ, not only do we have a better priest, but now we have a better hope laid out for us in the person of Jesus. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So in in a lot of ways, this is just repeating what he just said up in verse 11. The old covenant could not prepare people to enter into God's presence. And in that way, it was marked by uselessness and weakness. While we were at Coloma, we considered the biblical theme of the promised land. If you're able to come with us, you you got to, to hear that. And we saw that throughout the pages of Scripture, the ultimate promised land is not found in Canaan. The ultimate promised land is actually found in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22 describe this new land. In this place, God reinstates the the blessings experienced in the Garden of Eden. So the glories of the Garden are reintroduced in the new heavens and the new earth, but the blessings are even better. The effects of sin will not be there, there will be no more crying, there will be no more pain, there will be no more hurt or death. But most profoundly, in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be a hope that God will be in our midst again. God will be present when the new heavens and the new earth are established. He will be in our midst like He was walking around in the Garden of Eden, so too he will be walking around in the new heavens and the new earth in our very presence. But this introduces a problem for those under the old sacrificial system which never offered true perfection. They can't get to the promised land if they aren't purified, if they aren't sanctified through Through the means of of sacrifices under the old Mosaic system, they needed something new. We talked about this as well at Coloma. In order for there to be a promised land where God dwells in the midst of his people, God needs to make a new people. He needs to make a new people unstained by the guilt of sin. See, the guilty are prohibited from entering into God's presence. And that's part of the reason why Adam and Eve were were banned from the garden after they sinned in Genesis chapter 3. So I ask, how could we have entered into God's presence through a broken sacrificial system that does not offer perfection? Well, that's the problem. You cannot do it. Prior to Christ... Apart from Christ, we would not have access into God's presence. I was actually, a few days ago, listening to an hour-long conversation between an adamant atheist and a conservative Jew. And during the, the conversation, they spent time talking about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the idea of Christ being a sacrificial lamb. And it was interesting to hear them both talk about the outdated morality of the sacrificial system, like slaughtering animals, that that is unethical. And even the Jew, who was a conservative Jew, considered that the Old Testament sacrifices were immoral in some sense. And both of them clearly denied the importance and reasonableness of Jesus dying for sin. Now I find it interesting that all of their critiques failed to recognize what is at the heart of the Christian message. The message of the gospel is about a guilty people gaining access to the presence of God. Now, if you do not understand that fundamental reality, then you will certainly think that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the sacrificial uh, offering of Christ, the Lamb of God, would be unethical and pointless. But if you begin to understand that the entire gospel The entire Bible is about a guilty people entering into the presence of God, and we're trying to find a way there. Then the sacrificial system begins to make sense. It's not just outdated, it's not immoral. It's a way for us to enter into the presence of God. In order for there to be access for a guilty people, God had to provide a sacrifice, an effective sacrifice capable of covering the stains of sin and he did so the former law former failures of the law they were reversed in christ and now perfection can be found in a new and better priest because we can find perfection in christ Now we actually have access into the throne room. This is our hope. It's the hope that's unrealistic apart from the intervention of Christ. We're unable to enter into God's presence apart from Christ's grace. And that's where our hope is found, in the presence of God. Because that is where we find true love. That is where we find true joy, true satisfaction. And so now I must ask, where are you placing your hope? Where do you set your hope? Are you setting your hope in the sacrificial lamb of God who grants you access into the eternal presence of God where there is everlasting joy? Or are you looking elsewhere to satisfy those cravings and those longings? If you are not setting your hope in Christ and in God, you will be left disappointed. See, all falsely placed hope only results in disappointment. Because maybe you don't get what you're you're longing for or hoping in. And so you end up feeling the weight of not getting the spouse you have been longing for or the car that you have been saving up for or the raise or the job or the acceptance letter or the scholarship or the friend group. Maybe you've placed your your hope in the approval of other people. But when you fail to perform to the best of your ability, you leave your your boss feeling unimpressed. Falsely placed hope can only result in disappointment. And sometimes the even worse disappointment comes when you actually get the spouse, when you actually get the car, when you get the job, when you get the raise... When you get the acceptance letter or the scholarship or the friend group. And that's because when you actually get that thing, you recognize, you realize that that thing does not satisfy in the way that you thought it would. And so you're left with even greater disappointment than you would have had if you never got the thing in the first place. Your hope was misplaced. And even though you got what you wanted, you were not left satisfied. So maybe you think that having sex with that specific girl will, will fulfill your hopes. And then you get it and you're only left wanting. You feel this desire just for the next girl. Now you want the brunette instead of the, bron- the blonde, right? And in our pornified and and... and a culture where, where your imagination is now capable of just running rampant and running wild because of the images that you see daily. You will never be satisfied by, by that sex. Sisters, may, maybe you want to marry, maybe you get to marry the most successful guy in your graduating class. But a couple of months after the wedding night you realize that he isn't actually going to satisfy your longings. He doesn't care for you the way that he thought that you thought he would. He doesn't talk to you the way you thought he would. He doesn't talk to you the way he used to talk to you. He doesn't look at you the way he used to look at you. He doesn't take care of you the way you thought he would. He doesn't show love to you in the way that you thought he would, in the way he should, that's because he, he is not capable of satisfying your cravings, your, your, your true longings. He's not worthy of your hope. But I get it. When I tell you that you need to place your hope in the priesthood of Jesus, you're thinking, what in the world does that even mean? That is bizarre, that's out there, that's foreign, that's meaningless. What does it mean to place my hope in the priesthood of Christ? Well, it's not meaningless. It is tangible. Look at what we see in verses 22 through 25. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant see, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he is always, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in verse two, we see that we have a better hope because of the fact that Christ is the guarantee of a better covenant. He's the one who guarantees and brings about new promises, better promises than those offered under the old covenant. And this guarantee is bound up in the idea that Jesus is the eternal high priest. This means his priesthood will never change. This priesthood will never pass away. It's eternal. This hope is solidified forever. It's not suspect to change, and it's not fickle. So often we place our hope in things that are bound to change, and when we do so, that leaves us feeling anxious. So you place your hope in people. People are bound to change. You place your hope hope in a home, but homes are bound to deteriorate. You place your hope in that new car, but eventually it breaks down. This week I've been spending uh, a bit of time looking at my retirement investments, and I'm trying to sort out where I'm gonna put my savings. And now, it, it is wise to invest but the temptation is to place my hope, for all of us to place our hope in these predictions about what might happen over the next 20 or 30 years with this investment based off what happened the previous 20 or 30 years. But there is no guarantee that we'll, what will happen 20 years later is similar to what actually happened 20 years prior. When you place your, your hope and in in, in a financial investment, that thing is bound to change. It's bound to falter. It's not steadfast. Yet Christ will not change because he is eternal. He is an eternal priest of a new and better covenant. And therefore, we have a guarantee that our hope will last through eternity. We don't need to worry about Christ changing. We don't need to worry about our hope faltering. We don't need to to worry about our eternal king stepping off the throne. He's eternal and he is our high priest, so he is always there to make intercession on our behalf. And through him, we get access to God. God. And this does not mean that we get to make a few phone calls to him every once in a while and maybe he'll pick up. This doesn't mean that he might respond to a couple of our texts when we send him a text. That's not what access to God means. 25, verse 25 clarifies this. We don't just get access into his presence, we get to draw near to God We get to come to Him. We get to enter into His presence. So one day, through Christ, we get access into His throne throne room where we can walk with Him throughout the new creation that He forms. That is where true hope is found. Because when you draw near to God, you find true fulfillment for all of your heartfelt yearnings. Where are those, those yearnings actually going to be fulfilled? In God's presence when you draw near to him. And that will explicitly, perfectly take place in the new, commun- new, new creation when you get to walk with him. You see, the desires that you, you think your spouse or a car or a job or a degree or a friendship will fulfill, Will not be fulfilled until you get to enter into his presence. So place your hope in the right thing. Because that is where we find true satisfaction. It's in that way that we find hope in a priest, it's in that way that our hope is found in the person of Christ, because he is the one who enables us to enter into God's presence. He is the one who enables us to walk into the very presence of God where our hopes and our joys and our longings and our our cravings will be fulfilled absolutely. It's in his presence that all of those desires, all of those affections will be fulfilled perfectly. So hold fast to our hope that we have in Christ. Because through that, we get to draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you that one day we will enter into your presence, not based on our own merits, but on the merits of Christ. And we we praise you that he is pleading our case. He is interceding for us. He rules and reigns on our behalf. And we praise you for that. And we pray that that hope would empower us and give us the, the ability and, and, and the endurance to hold fast to this salvation that we have in your son.